Would you guys make welcome Dr. Jerry Rankin? Well, thank you, Darren. You know, I, I've just been sitting here all weekend thinking, this is absolutely crazy. I mean, th this cannot be happening. I speak in churches all across the country all the time, mission conferences, challenges. You know, most of them 100 years old, you know, big churches, 1,000 members or so. And, uh, you know, afterwards, you usually have lunch with the pastor, and this is the way the com com uh, conversation goes. Well, Dr. Rankin, we really appreciate you coming and uh, giving us a mission challenge. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to reach our community and build up our church programs and pay off our, our church building indebtedness, and then we're going to get involved in missions. You know, and all week long, I just want to say, Darren, you can't be doing all this. You're not big enough. You know, you, you're just a new church. You know, who do you think you are trying to reach the whole world? <laughs> and this has just been such a blessing. If you haven't been here, uh, it, it's just been, been really, really wonderful. Just, such, just to see what God is doing through your faith and your generosity and your heart for Jesus and desire for the world to know Him. But as I said on Friday night, you know, a mission emphasis such as this weekend is not just a time to hear from these missionaries and testimonies what God is doing in other places around the world, but it's really a time when God is seeking to speak into your life to reveal your place in God's mission. And it has been such a blessing just uh, to be here this weekend, just to, to worship with you. I tell you, uh, this worship, Jeremy, that, that's not typical in the church I go to. I mean, it is so refreshing to, to sing praises of people with authentic worship of worshiping and praising the Lord, and, and it's just such a blessing. But you know, there's one thing wrong with this. We're the only ones doing it. You gather here every week and, and worship and sing praises to, to uh, you know, God the Father and just praise Jesus for His grace. Most of the world is not praising the Lord. They're not singing those songs of praises. They don't even know Him. I remember when we were living in Singapore uh, some years ago. How many of you know what a Walkman is or was? Okay, okay, a few of you do. You know, before iPods, before, even before CDs, you know, your music was on these little tape uh, cassettes. And uh, you had this little uh, thing you put on your belt, a little cassette player, and, you know, earphones, and you could listen to, to music and so forth. Well, we lived in Singapore and would often walk on the East Coast Parkway. And I remember I'd come in late from a trip, was sleeping in. My wife didn't wait on me. She went out and was walking. And she came in and... Uh, you know, put on that, that Walkman, you just energizes you, you know, saying, our God reigns, mighty is our God, and, you know, bless the name of Jesus. I mean, exercise is one thing, but the spiritual worship, you know, that just, anyway. But she came in, and she was a little emotional. She was taking off that ear, earphone, Walkman earphones, and she says, I, I, I was the only one hearing the music. And I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? So, well, you know, all those people out early in the morning, groups of Chinese doing Tai Chi exercises and, you know, Indian ladies in their saris and tennis shoes bristly walking and these uh, Muslim mystics out looking over the, the ocean. 
and nobody else was hearing the music. I thought, well, you're the only one that's got the earphones on. Duh. But that's what she, she didn't really mean that. She meant they didn't know the music. They weren't hearing the music. They weren't singing praises to God. I, I remember a pastor telling me about a mission trip to Cambodia, and it, it had been a fantastic experience. He said, you know, one, one day the missionary we were working with teaches English with some Buddhist monks in a monastery, and he took us to this monastery to have fellowship with Buddhist monks, and we felt a little awkward in that situation, but they were just very hospitable. They were excited about meeting Americans and practicing their English, and we shared our testimonies and just got acquainted, and it was really a wonderful time of fellowship. And, uh, you know, and our group got together and sang some of the praise courses that we sing back in our church back at home. And afterwards, it was just kind of off the cuff without forethought. I said, why don't you sing some of your songs for us? And he said that group of saffron robe monks got together in a little group and started this weird dissonant chant. And after a few lines, it just faded out, and one of them very apologetically said, we don't have any songs in our religion. Do you realize we're the only ones that sing? You read about fanatic Muslims bowing down five times a day, praying to Allah and Muhammad as his prophet. They know nothing of God's redeeming love that would elicit a song of praise in their hearts. You read of the masses of Buddhists and Hindus across Asia striving for their eternal destiny through their own good works. They know nothing of God's redeeming grace that would lead them to sing songs of praise. They don't even know He exists. We're the only ones that sing. And you see, God's heart and God's desire is that all the nations and all the peoples of the world would sing His praise. That's what our, our mission is all about. It's not just about making more believers, getting more to pray the prayer of salvation. It's about God being honored and glorified. Uh, quite at some time ago, I read a book that really has revolutionized my thinking about missions by John Piper. You may be familiar with it. Uh, the, the Supremacy of God in Missions. Uh, and he starts off the very first paragraph says, missions is not the main thing. How about that, Darren? Now, it's really, it's not the main thing. Man, I closed the book. I was ready to throw it away right there. I've been telling people, you know, missions is the main thing that you need to get involved in. But he goes on to say, missions is not the main thing. Worship is. We exist to worship God. And the reason we do missions is because most of the world is not worshiping God. And we've got to tell them of Jesus. We've got to bring them to faith in Him that they too can, can worship God. You know, a lot of people think that the Great Commission is just spun off as a, kind of an afterthought as Jesus completed His earthly ministry after His death and resurrection was ready to ascend to the Father and there gathered with His disciples on a hillside in Galilee said, Oh, by the way, it just occurred to me. Why don't you go and make disciples of other nations? No. It, it was born in the heart of God before the foundation of the world 
This is why he called Israel as his people. As it said in Chronicles 16, they were to declare his glory among the nations, his salvation to the ends of the earth, that all the peoples of the earth would praise his name. God's desire is to be praised, but people are being deprived. God is being deprived of the praises of his people. And that's why we're to do missions. And Piper goes on to say, we're going to be praising our Lord and glorifying him for all eternity. But we have only a brief time to carry out his missions that all the nations would, would praise him. Uh, I'm still very technologically challenged. My son is, others are exasperated that I don't even have an iPhone. Finally got a little flip top phone, you know, because I, I don't really need to be accessible 24-7, you know. But anyway, uh, I've always been technologically challenged. When I came to the States after 23 years overseas uh, to the International Mission Board, uh, definitely technologically challenged. I had not even owned a computer. And all of our systems were computerized, you know, uh, financial, personnel, management, uh, messaging and everything. I had no idea. And my, my secretary was chagrined to show, now here's how you turn it on. And then she explained, you key in your document and then you save it, you know, and so forth. And that was about all I could assimilate, you know, the first time. And uh, you know, my whole tenure there, 17 years, was trying to get up to speed. Every time I felt like I'd finally mastered it, you know, IT would upgrade it and change all the keystrokes and everything. It, it was just so exasperating. But one thing I discovered in our uh, messaging system was automatic spell check. It, if I misspelled a word, it highlighted it right there on the screen before God and the office and everybody. I mean, you, you, you couldn't deny it, but Amazingly, I didn't have to know how to spell anymore. It would Man, I wish I had this when I was in school. But, uh, but the problem I found with that, that it didn't ha have all the words in my vocabulary. I mean, I didn't know how to spell Kazakhstan, and it didn't either. Uh, you know, uh, at Southern Baptist, we have this uh, annual mission offering, Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And uh, first time it highlighted Lottie Moon, I clicked the, the, the button and it, it changed it to Little Moon. And I, no, that didn't work. It never even heard, heard of Lottie Moon. But, but I found you could change it. You know, you could add it to your, your program and wouldn't keep running into that. But a word I was amazed wasn't in that spell check program was the word unreached. And we use that all the time, unreached families, unreached nations, unreached peoples. And it, it was highlighted as misspelled, but if I, I click the, the program to find out the correct spelling, you know what it suggested and assumed was intended? The word unrelated. Now, I don't think there was a theological basis for Windows 95, which we were using then. <laughs> But it's exactly on target here. Who is it that is unreached? Those who are unrelated to our Heavenly Father. It's what it means to be unreached, whether in your neighborhood, across the street, or at the ends of the earth. They're unreached because they don't know Jesus and never been 
related to him. When we began to grasp the scope of lostness, researchers tell us as many as 1.2 billion people in our world have not even heard the name of Jesus. That's hard to imagine in our age of communication technology today. But there are people who live in, among isolated, restricted countries where the gospel has never been proclaimed. There's no church in their midst. There's no known believers. There's no scripture in their language. There are no missionaries yet engaging them with the Christian witness and have never heard the name of Jesus. And when we begin to grasp the scope of the problem with uh, our mission agencies and network of, of mission sending uh, bodies, uh, you know, we realize there would never be enough missionaries to reach the gospel, to take the gospel to every people group. But a deep conviction stirred within us that the Great Commission wasn't just given to an elite few who go as missionaries, but it's given to the church, the body of Christ. Every believer, every church is under the mandate of our Lord to disciple the nation. So we begin to mobilize churches and enlist them to adopt people groups. And well, what do we do? How do we reach them? Well, you can start by praying for them. You know, in uh, Psalm 2.9, the scripture says, God says, ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession." You know, God is sovereign over the nations. He's waiting on someone to take a people group into their heart and to intercede and plead for them and pray for them. And God will do the work and get the gospel to them. So churches begin to adopt people groups. They, you know, strange-sounding people like the Mazdarani and the Kwashkai and the Baluchi in Central Asia and the Zhuang and Uyghur in China and so forth. And a curious thing, interesting thing began to happen is a curiosity about these people. You know, if you're praying for them, you want to know, well, how could it be that they've never heard the gospel? What are these people like? And, and, and churches begin to send prayer teams to pray on site among the people that were unreached, often very restricted to an over-Christian witness. And I remember a group of churches had adopted the Azeris of Azerbaijan. And uh, we helped coordinate uh, a team, representatives from these churches, to go to, to, to Azerbaijan. And the pastor that was leading it was telling us that they would go and just pray in the cities, they would go to the university campuses and pray for the students in the towns, just interceding, lifting up these people that God would open a door of witness to them. And, uh, of course, they were accompanied by a government-assigned, obvious tourist guide who was really from the Department of Internal Security, you know, that was monitoring their activity. And they became acquainted after a few days. He was oblivious to what they were actually doing, that they were praying as they would go to these places. But they had become acquainted with him and felt comfortable with him. And this pastor, who was leading the group, uh, asked him one day in conversation, Mr. Ishtakov, are you a religious person? He said, uh, you know, started to answer with government, stereotype, propaganda, but 
recognizing he had been asked a personal question, he said, no, I'm not a religious person. But it's not my fault. We've never been encouraged to be interested in religious matters in the former Soviet Union, these communist countries. We don't believe in God. And as a pastor shared that with me, very emotionally, he said, that answer just continues to pierce my heart with conviction. I keep hearing it. I'm not a religious person, but it's not my fault. For this pastor said, I realize it's my fault. For 2,000 years ago, my Lord said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to every creature. And the reason Mr. Ishtakov and the people of Azerbaijan and multitudes like them do not know the love of our Heavenly Father is not through any fault of their own. They haven't rejected Jesus. They've never heard of Him. And that's my fault. And you know, as, as we think of God's heart and desire for the nations... Why we do missions. It's not just another program of a church. It's not just something all the Bible teaches us and so somebody's got to do it and this is what we're obligated to do. It's driven by a passion and heart for people to know God and for God to receive their, their worship. And the greatest tragedy is not just people that are unsaved and lost and bound for hell. Or even the fact that they never have an opportunity to be saved and are never heard. Folks, the greatest tragedy in our disobedience and our lack of faithfulness and our mission task is that He alone who is worthy of all worship and honor and praise is being deprived of the worship and praise of the people He loves and died to save who are waiting for someone to take the gospel to him. And you know, I guess if there's any verse a good Christian church of any denomination or whatever knows next to, I guess, John 3.16, it would be the Great Commission in Matthew 28.19-20, where Jesus says to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You see, we understand our mission we understand the necessity and the mandate of taking the gospel to those who haven't heard. And we should understand the urgency of it. Because people are dying, going to hell without Christ until we're obedient to fulfill that mission. But I think the problem is not a failure to understand the urgency and priority of missions or uh, the urgency of it, but is a motivation for personal involvement in it. Uh, you know, in all these mission conferences and our board commission missionaries, always an appeal for others to respond to the call of God. And invariably, someone comes up to me afterwards and said, Dr. Rankin, I would be willing to go as a missionary, but God has not called me. Now, Darren, I've never figured out how to respond to that tactfully. <laughs> you know, here's a God who wants the world to know him, yearns for them to know him, and here's a Christian and said, and I would be willing to go, but the reason I don't 
is to blame God because God's chosen not to call me. I don't think so. You see, we've embraced that myth that unless we have a burning bush or Damascus Road experience, then we're exempt. We can just sit comfortable in our pew, enjoy the fellowship, you know, the comforts and amenities of an American lifestyle. Uh, you know, someone else's call. I've never really felt that call. And ignore the fact that the call is to the church, the people of God. When you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have just signed on to the mission of God. And no one is exempt. We all have a responsibility. But I think Jesus understood that the problem would be motivation because, you see, he knew his limited time on earth would quickly pass and there would come the time when the disciples and followers that he called about them, that he would have to relinquish the fulfillment and carrying out this mission to them. And so throughout his ministry, especially his time with his disciples, if you read the Gospels from this presupposition, you can begin to discern that he is preparing them to fulfill the Great Commission and take the Gospel to the nations. And he realized the problem was motivation. Because the first verse that he... Well, before I get to that, I got carried away. Our text for the morning. <laughs> text for the morning. One little verse. 1 John 3.17. Every time I read this, I find myself wishing God had never inspired this to be included in his word because it pierces my heart with conviction. 1 John 3.17 says, Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Okay. I'm going to come back to that later. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that the first command Jesus gave to his disciples was not the command to go, witness, make disciples. The very first command Jesus gave his disciples was to look. To look. You find it early in his ministry in the fourth chapter of John. You remember the experience of him encountering the woman at the well. And the disciples had been into the city to buy food, and when he returned to them, he said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Verse, verse 35, John 4, 35. Lift up your eyes and look onto the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. He commanded them, open your eyes and look. See the world as God sees it. See the people around you that are lost or ready to be reaped and harvested and brought into the kingdom of God. He's commanded us to look. On a trip to Central Asia some years ago, I was talking to one of our missionaries who taught in a technical school in Nakus, which is a little city up in northwest Uzbekistan. And in that conversation, I remember him telling me that the the, the school has a very auspicious school song, the words of which go something to the effect, 
The name of the school is the center of Nakus. Nakus is the center of Karl Kapak land. Karl Kapak land is the center of Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Now, it's probably never occurred to you that Uzbekistan's the center of the world. <laughs> Geographically, it may be. <laughs> but that's not our world. Our world centers around ourselves, our life, our home, our business, our friends, where we live. And we're not going to do much about reaching the lost of the world until we're willing to look beyond the narrow provincialism of our little world. See, when we quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world, folks, that's not just our world of beautiful homes and shopping malls and expressways. It's a world of destitute refugees flooding our world with hopelessness and poverty, suffering. It's a world of those impoverished villages in Haiti and Uganda places in Africa where people are hopeless. It's a world of people living in darkness in unreached people groups. That's the world God loves and died to save. And we're not going to respond. We're not going to give ourselves to them. We're not going to do anything about it till we're willing to open our eyes and see that world We've been touched by that world. Our eyes have been opened through testimonies and reports of what we've been hearing all weekend. But you don't have to come to a mission conference. You just turn on your newscast and you see a world of people that are hurting and suffering. Does it ever occur to you that they're without Christ, that he's the answer? We've got to obey his command and look and see that world as God sees it. But even after Jesus commanded his disciples to look, he still didn't command them, okay, now go and make disciples of the nations. No, the next command, now there are various imperatives that he gives in his teaching and his lessons, but the that next explicit command he gives to his disciples is found in John 13, 34, and they gathered with him in the upper room, and he, he makes it very explicit. He said, a new command I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. He commanded them to love. Short time later, a young Pharisee asked him the question, which is the greatest command? Now, I really don't have this kind of respect to the Bible and the words of Jesus, but it kind of just shows my narrowness and, you know, I'm kind of one-dimensional. And I thought, boy, Jesus really blew it. You know, what is the great command? Why didn't he say, go into all the world and make disciples? But that wasn't how he replied. What did he say? The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And he hastened to say, the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just so there was no mistake in understanding, he told the story of the Good Samaritan to show that that neighbor we are to love are not people like us that we like to fellowship with, that we're comfortable with socially, but they're people of other races and other cultures, even like the Samaritan and Jews, people that hate us and want to destroy us. 
We're to love them. Why did Jesus say that's the greatest commandment? Someone has correctly said that the great commandment and great commission are inextricably linked. For you see, we'll never fulfill the commission of our Lord to go to the nations and peoples in need wherever they are if we don't obey His commandment to love them. Because love is other-centered. That's what compels us. We care about them. You love your family, your children. You give yourselves for them. You provide for their welfare. You sacrifice for them. Well, what about a lost world? Do you love the refugees sweeping across Europe from war-torn countries where they've been decimated by genocide, where their lives are threatened? Do you love? The masses of people struggling in hopeless darkness with no hope of salvation. This life or the life to come. Do you love? And you say, well, it's just not our nature to love people we don't know. I mean, with these strange sounding names and people groups that we don't know anything about. People, Muslim terrorists that want to destroy us. No, it's not our nature to love them. But it is God's nature, and he loves them. You see, that's why the command is to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul. Because it's only when we love God, have a passion for Jesus, that our lives then become a channel of his love to a lost world. I used to think beating people over the head with the Great Commission would just result in more people volunteering to go as missionaries and churching being more generous to support missions, give more of their budget to missions, but it doesn't. We just so easily rationalize, well, you know, that's what our church does in its church program or, you know, opportunities we have to witness and share the gospel occasionally. Forgetting it's to the nations, the whole world, it's our responsibility. And I came to understand why even the Great Commission doesn't motivate us to do the Great Commission. You would think any Christian would be conscientious about doing what our Lord told us to do. But why does it not motivate us? I was reading a book on evangelism by Dr. J. Connor years ago in a statement just jumped out and grabbed me. I've never forgotten. He said, the Great Commission is sufficient authority to send us after the lost, but it's not sufficient motivation. Well, I thought, why wouldn't it motivate us? And he goes on to say, it's not the authority of an external command, even from our Lord but it's the impulse of an indwelling presence that sends us after the lost. See, we know what Jesus told us to do. We know how he told us to live. That doesn't result in our living, holiness, Christ-like character, service, love, sacrifice. Certainly has the authority to tell us what to do. That doesn't motivate us. 
But you see, it's only when you come into a relationship with God in which you recognize that you're a sinner saved by grace. That you are a recipient, an undeserving recipient of His mercy. There's something that's life-changing about that experience that makes you want to know others to know Jesus and have that experience. That's what motivates us and gives us a love for those who do not know Jesus. But even after Jesus commanded his disciples to look and to love, he still didn't command them to go. Now, I have to kind of swallow hard to acknowledge this, but to be true to Scripture, if you're familiar with the grammar of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 8, 19, and 20, you know there's only one active intransitive verb, imperative verb in that passage. And what is it? It's make disciples. What Jesus has commanded us to do is to live in a way of incarnational witness that we're relating to a lost world and drawing them into the kingdom and to make disciples and followers of Christ. All the rest of the verb forms are participles. So how do we make disciples? By baptizing and teaching them. Well, how do you make disciples of the nations? By going. You've got to get there with the gospel. Do something to get the gospel to where they are. But it's not a command. It's not an imperative form to go. It's a participle. What the verse literally says is, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. There's an assumption we'll be going to the nations. Why? Because we've been obedient to the command to look and see the nations and their lostness and the need for Jesus, the fields that are widened to harvest. We've been obedient to His command to love those nations and those peoples. And so it's not a command to go, it's an expectation that if we will see people that are lost and we love them with the love that God places in our heart, then we will be going with our giving, with our praying, with our lives to make disciples and followers of Christ all over the world. Not because we're obligated. Not because we're commanded to. Somebody's got to do it. Heels dug in, conscripted into service against our will. No. It's out of a heart of passion and love that motivates us to go. And closing, come back to that little verse in 1 John 3.17. Not usual, I go the whole sermon, don't preach on my text, Darren, but uh, anyway, there's a purpose in here. Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It closes with the question, but actually it confronts us with four questions. First question, what do you have? What do you have? Do you have this world's goods? 
Now, you may reply to that, well, I'm certainly not wealthy, and I have trouble making my paycheck make it to the end of the month and so forth. But, folks, let's get honest. God has richly blessed and prospered us as Americans. I doubt if there's anyone in this room that has to be concerned about a roof over your head, clothes to wear, and food to eat like most of the people in our world. Because God has blessed us with this world's material goods. But you know the greatest good you can have in this world is not material things. It's your salvation. The fact that you can know Jesus and that your salvation is secure while you are living in this world is the greatest thing you could possess. And does Jesus live within your heart? You have what the world needs. So the second question then is, what do you see? Do you see your brother in need? Now realize this isn't your, your blood brother, your blood, brother in the flesh, it's your brother in humanity. And we, we typically think of the homeless living under the bridge or those addicts in a place of hope that we you know, minister with, try to, try to support in, in, in reaching and so forth. But what greater need does our brother need, whether in Nashville or around the world, than the need for Jesus? Do you see them in Africa, in Haiti, in Asia? Their lostness, their hopelessness. These are your brothers. Yes, you are responsible. We'll be held accountable for them. Because, you see, we've got what they need. Do you see them? Have you opened your eyes to recognize beyond your own little world? And then there's the third question that's really implied. Having what this world needs, seeing a brother in need, what do you do about it? What do you give? Are as the scripture says, do you close your heart, some translations say, your heart of compassion against them? How do you respond? How do you respond? I remember see, receiving a letter, Darren, when we were beginning to move our emphasis to all the unreached people groups and mobilizing more missionaries and redeploying and getting the gospel uh, to the whole world. And uh, someone wrote me that had a prayer ministry, I think somewhere in Texas, and he said, Dr. Rankin, I've been reading about uh, all these unreached people groups that yet to hear the gospel, the need for more missionaries, for more churches to partner together, uh, to take responsibility for reaching them. And, and whenever I pray, I really ask God for a verse of Scripture to just be the basis of my prayer and acclaim. And I've been praying... Pray in Matthew 9, 38, that the Lord of the harvest would pray, would thrust out labors into the harvest. And then he asks, I want you to tell me, why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't he doing what he promised to do? Why isn't he calling out the laborers that are needed? I didn't know how to respond. In fact, honestly, I'd been wondering the same thing myself. 
And after praying and meditating on that, I, I responded, and I'd read something that kind of stimulated this in a, some missiological journal or something. And I said, sir, I believe God is answering your prayer. God is calling out the laborers, but the laborers aren't responding because of a closed mind or a calloused heart or a reluctant will. Now I want to ask, yes, somewhat confrontationally, why you've never considered the potential in your life of being a part of what God is doing in his mission to reach a lost world. You're part of a church that provides abundant opportunities for giving to missions, for going, for being involved. Is it because your mind has been closed, thinking, well, I'm just not qualified, I wouldn't know what to do? Listen, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You respond and lay your life on the altar and, and he's going to take over and control and guide and empower and use you. He's just waiting. And we've closed our minds to the possibility that I can do anything. Or maybe it's a, a, a calloused heart. Yeah, we see the suffering. We see the needs. We're aware of the lostness. Well, we just... Close our hearts and minds to this. I remember a missionary appointment service. It's in a large church, just packed. The missionaries all gave their testimonies, and afterwards the congregation just erupted in a standing ovation, just whooping and hollering and applauding that just went on and on. And afterward, the, the pastor that was leading the prayer of dedication addressed these new missionaries and said, you know why everyone was clapping so enthusiastically? Because it's you going and not them. Oh, we're so, we're so proud of these missionaries. We just support them. We pray for them and applaud them. Thank you, Lord. There's not me. Please don't call me to Africa. And we've just allowed our hearts to be callous to a lost world as if we have no responsibility for them. But most likely... It's because of a reluctant will that we've never come to the point of a willingness to just lay our life on the altar and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm available. Wherever you want me to go, commitment has already been made. I don't know how you can use me. He may want you right here involved in ministry and outreach in the Nashville area, but you can never be sure you're in the center of God's will until you've been willing to go wherever he leads, even to the ends of the earth. What do you have? What do you see? What do you give? They're all answered by the fourth question. How much do you love? For how can you say the love of God is in you? And close your heart. Withhold your life from a world that needs to know Jesus. Will you bow with me in prayer?
Father, sometimes we hide behind the excuse that we know about missions, we want to support missions, and glad to be a part of a church that does missions, but we've never seen ourselves personally involved in it. And I often hide behind the, the myth that God hasn't led us, God hasn't called us, or the excuse that we're not qualified and there's really nothing that we can do. But I pray today, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts. Help us to see a world that never has the opportunity to know Jesus as we do. It's still waiting for someone who's willing to say, I'll be the one to go. And Lord, it's just natural for us to be kind of self-centered and focused on our own needs and comforts and security, but Lord, I pray that just as we've experienced your love, that your love for a lost world would flow into our hearts and give us a burden and a passion and love for those that need you. And Lord, that you would find us responsive and obedient to whatever you would have us to do. That we would reflect our love for you in a practical outpouring of love for a lost world. Thank you for a church that keeps missions its priority. Thank you for a church with a bold faith that gives beyond its means. Thank you for a church, Lord, that is not content to just stay at home to worship, but is willing to go and follow wherever you lead. And Lord, I pray that you would bless each one who is here to be a part of that. And Lord, as tragic as it is, there, there are many people who've never heard of Jesus. There could be a tra greater tragedy than that right here this morning. And that's someone who's heard of Jesus, who's been to church, who knows that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they've never given their lives to you and received you and the salvation that you provided for them. How tragic that there would be people right here who have an opportunity and a privilege that most of the world doesn't have and would just neglect ever coming to Jesus and receiving your salvation. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that they would open their hearts and as your spirit leads, would pray to receive Jesus, to be a part of your kingdom, to know your love. They can't understand this emphasis on missions and reaching others because they've never come into that experience themselves. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the day of salvation for someone right here 
even as you call us as a congregation to take salvation to the ends of the earth. May we be responsive and obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.